Good morning, class. Oh, that was weak. I'm, this is a weak response. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, I was told that I didn't introduce myself yesterday when I got up and, and started speaking extemporaneously. Uh, I'm Bob Beatty with AASLH and uh, one of the organizers here along with the rest of our staff. I'm really glad to have you here. Before we get started, I want to do what I did not do yesterday and begin by acknowledging our sponsor, USA Image, who has sponsored uh, today's plenary address. Can you all please give them a hand as thank you on your behalf and our behalf. And uh, I know some folks are, are still filtering in. We're, we're going to stay uh, on schedule here. I'm going to introduce a very good friend of mine, the man behind the fabulous first ever AASLH block party last night on Main <laughs> Street. If you were there, you know Scott Alvey, our host chair, is, is going to come up and kick off festivities. So Scott, come on up. So I'm glad to know I'm not the only one that didn't introduce myself. And where's my herald of trumpets like I had yesterday? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, welcome. So are you guys enjoying Kentucky so far? Awesome. Awesome. Uh, speaking of last night's event, I wanted to make sure we thank Brown Foreman for their support of the evening event, uh, as well as Jody Lewis of the Fraser History Museum, Colleen Wilson of the Sons of the American Revolution, and Ann Jewell of the Louisville Slugger Museum for being such wonderful hosts last night. Uh, and also to Carol Ely of Locust Grove, uh, the Louisville CVB, and the whole crew of the Bell of Louisville for Wednesday night's event. So if you can give them a round of applause and for all the work they've done. I'd also like to take the opportunity uh, to, to recognize our host committee that represented 16 organizations of Kentucky and Southern Indiana. I know a lot of you guys are here this morning. I can't tell you how much I appreciate all the work and the dedication that they put in over the last two and a half years to make today possible. Uh, and also, I want to recognize our team at KHS who have done so many contributions for this effort. I can't possibly mean, uh, recount them all. Uh, but I do have to give a shout out to Phyllis Gilman. Phyllis, you're not here, are you? No. You know why she's not here? She's out there coordinating over 100 volunteers to make this thing happen. So thank you, Phyllis. I don't know why I thought she would be here. That was crazy. Uh, it's also my honor today to get to introduce our, our first guest. Uh, as Kentucky's 56th Lieutenant Governor, Crit Llewellyn is known as one of Kentucky's most experienced and respected public leaders. Uh, she has served with six governors and has been elected twice to statewide office. She was elected to the State Auditor of Public Accounts in 2003 and re-elected in 2007. Her work brought, her, uh, brought a new accountability to board government organizations across Kentucky, which I know impacted a lot of our, our organizations and still has material and things that I reference to this day. Uh, prior to that, she served nearly seven years as, sec as the secretary of the governor's executive cabinet, the highest appointed position in Kentucky state government. In 2009, she was named the public official of the year in Washington, D.C., uh, a D.C.-based magazine, I'm sorry, governing for her positive impact on the government in Kentucky. She's a dedicated public servant. Uh, she, makes, uh, she likes to make a difference, and she knows and believes that that understanding of our history is key to guiding our change. Uh, her mother was a curator of the Kentucky Historical Society, so she's a friend of ours, and we love that. Uh, and she's also spent a lot of time at the old state capitol because of that. So I want to introduce our Lieutenant Governor, Crit Llewellyn. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for that kind introduction, and good morning to everyone, and welcome to Kentucky. We are delighted to have you here. 
what a great chance for us to spotlight what we know is a deep and rich history of our state, and we hope you'll leave here not only energized with new ideas and ways to advance your organizations, but also with a deeper appreciation of who we are as Kentuckians and what this state is all about. I'm especially honored to be on the stage this morning with Jim Clutter and Wendell Berry. Um, Wendell Berry, of course, is an icon around the world for his incredible writings and his thoughtful approach to learning from our history how we can inform our future, and Jim Clotter, our great historian for Kentucky, and I'm going to stay myself to hear what they have to say this morning. I was asked to do just a few minutes of welcoming comments by Kent Whitworth and Scott, and they told me I could only take five minutes because they've heard me preach uh, a number of times. I've served on the Historical Society Foundation Board for a number of years, and as Scott mentioned, my mother was a curator at the old State Capitol Museum, and she was with the Historical Society for 28 years, so I grew up around and inside that facility and around those wonderful folks who are preserving our history. I have a deep personal history in Kentucky. I have ancestors on both sides of my family settled seven generations ago within 10 miles of where I live today, and I still live in the old farmhouse where I have lived all of my life. My name, Crit. My first name is actually short for my middle name, Crittenden. I'm named for a 19th century Kentucky governor, and another Kentucky governor in the 19th century is also on the other side of my family. So I have a deep appreciation for Kentucky's history and a deep sense of pride and place about where we are as a state and where we need to go. What I have said time and again as I have worked to participate and add value as a foundation board member at the Kentucky Historical Society is that I think it is absolutely vital that we who value history are not just about preserving the past, but that we are also about making that history relevant to the present and to the future. And I have worked for, Scott said, six governors. I'm actually on my seventh. Um, but when I say that and talk about also serving eight years as Kentucky State Auditor, then you have a clue of how old I am. So I don't really like to list all of those governors out. But I've learned a little bit about public leadership and public policy and public decision making. And I continue to think how much better prepared would our public leaders be if they really understood what led to our failures and our successes in the past? And what lessons are in that past that can better inform our decisions today? I see time and again uh, public leaders coming into office, legislators, governors, other elected officials at the federal and state level, without understanding what got us to where we are today and what strength and knowledge can we draw from that history. For example, if you just think about this debate that's going on around many of the states in this nation right now, what could we learn from the great tragedy of the Civil War that could inform decisions today on racism, bigotry, and divisiveness that still mars this nation? How can we take that great tragedy of that war and turn it into a lesson for the next generations? That's the kind of discussion we're having here in Kentucky as we've faced these issues of Confederate symbols, for example. Or another example in the area of public policy. How can we look at past failures to address with a sustained commitment our toughest challenges and problems and turn them around? Right now in Kentucky, for example, we're facing a very 
divisive political debate about health care reform. This state embraced health care reform enthusiastically, and we're now seen as the national leader in reducing the number of uninsured in our population, with over half a million Kentuckians having access to health care. Why is that important? Because historically in Kentucky, we've been one of the sickest states in the nation. We have the highest mortality rate for cancer in America. And finally, because of that public policy decision, we are moving the needle, and we can begin to see a reduction in the number of cancer deaths, smoking, heart disease, lung disease, all of those factors that have led to such an unhealthy population because of that public policy decision. But right now it's being debated as a political football. And it's one of those once in a lifetime historic opportunities to truly change the future of the state. And as I look back at my life and career in public policy, I've worked for those governors in jobs that have ranged from the very bottom, working in a mailroom, to the top appointed positions and to elected posts and now as lieutenant governor. And what I see in our state, and I bet this is true for all of your states, is that time and again, we fail to stay on course with a sustained commitment over time to tackle those tough challenges. If our public leaders actually studied their history, they'd be much more thoughtful when discussing these difficult policy decisions. I know our panel is going to talk about this, but our state began its early days as a national leader in commerce, education, culture, religion. But decisions along the way by public leaders, uh, when they often abandoned their original commitment to our progress, decisions along the way reversed many of those successes and set us back time and again. So I think our challenge, and my challenge to all of you today, is to think about how your organizations are so much more than just preserving the past, but they're about taking the practices, the successes, the mistakes of the past, and using them as lessons to truly preserve the future and to improve the world. Too often in the public arena, we fail to connect the dots and understand how every aspect of our society and our communities are vitally interrelated. Commerce, education, the environment, they're all connected. And history has to be one of those dots. Moving forward, it's vital that history inform us and that we who love history make it relevant, not just to the past, but to the future. Again, welcome to Kentucky. We are delighted to have you here, and I hope all of you leave with a deep appreciation of our state, its past, and also inspired to go back and help history change the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's also my pleasure to introduce our moderator for today's plenary session. Uh, as one of Kentucky Education Television's public affairs program producers, Renee Shaw is the producer and managing editor and host of KET's legislative coverage. She co-hosts educational night coverage. She hosts KET's health series and produces numerous other issue-centered programs on KET. Uh, for more than a decade, she has produced Comment on Kentucky, KET's longest-running public affairs program. Uh, Renee began her career as a public policy reporter and associate producer. In 2005, she launched the first statewide minority affairs program, Connections with Renee Shaw. Uh, she travels across the state moderating public issue forums and speaking about diversity, media, political, and state legislative matters. She's also a Western Kentucky Hilltopper. Yes. So please give a warm welcome to Renee way. Shaw. <laughs> Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you.
go big red, as we say, and the rave the big red towel. Good afternoon. We've got some hilltoppers in the crowd. So, yeah, they got the symbol down. I'm just so delighted to be with you all today. I've met so many of you, and the enthusiasm and passion for history is very evident and palpable in this room and throughout these corridors. So I'm glad to lead this discussion among these distinguished men today because certainly what our Lieutenant Governor Crit Llewellyn just spoke about is exactly what these gentlemen's charge is to answer and those very relevant questions about why history is still relevant to our future and what have been those missed opportunities that we could, if we would have seized the lessons from history, how could we have changed our course? So to introduce you to our panel, which really needs no introduction, but I will do it as a formality, uh, Mr. Wendell Berry. He's an author, he's a Kentucky treasure, famous for his writings on nature and ecology. He was born in Henry County and he taught at Stanford University, Georgetown College, New York University, University of Cincinnati, Bucknell University, and his alma mater, the University of Kentucky. He has authored more than 50 works on fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, and he has been the recipient of numerous awards and honors. Among them, he was recently awarded the National Humanities Medal in 2010 by President Barack Obama, and he gave the 2012 Jefferson Lecture at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Please give a hearty welcome of applause to Mr. Wendell Berry. And now, Dr. James Clauder, a native Kentuckian. He received his PhD in history from the University of Kentucky. He is the author, co-author, or editor of almost 20 prize-winning books, including the standard works on Kentucky used in elementary, secondary, and the college level. Dr. Clauder was the executive director of the Kentucky Historical Society for many years, and he recently and currently serves as the professor of history at Georgetown College and is the state historian of Kentucky. A warm round of applause also for Dr. James Clauder. And before I go any further, there is another Kentucky treasure in the room with us today, and she is the spouse of the late Dr. Thomas Clark. Loretta Clark in the audience, if you will please stand and be recognized. As you all know, She is a high ambassador for history for Kentucky, and we are so very blessed to have her in our state. The legacy of Dr. Clark continues, and certainly she does that for him and for us. So thank you, Mrs. Clark, for being here today. It's our pleasure to be in the same room with you. Uh, I'm starstruck up here, folks, because we have such good talent, and we're going to get things going right now. We want to give a chance for you all to ask a few questions a little later on in the program and I'll make a cue for you to make your way to the two microphones in the room. Dr. Clotter, I'll start with you first. Uh, as our Lieutenant Governor Crit Llewellyn pointed out before that, and as you have said, that the guideposts of history inform our present day perspectives and actions. And the question about how to make history relevant, particularly in a digital age when people have an attention span that seems ever fleeting, how do you suggest we make history personal and relevant in these times? I think one way to do it is to simply make sure that history is something that people can understand out there. For instance, I'm talking to groups I talk about my students go to class, they follow a certain route there. You, when you came to this room, you followed a certain route you knew to get here. Well, hopefully you did, and if you didn't, you forgot your history. But mm -hmm. you know, those are things that you know each day, you know, the personal history. 
And then you go to the doctor's office, the first thing a doctor looks at is the medical history. First thing a, a lawyer does when they're doing law is their case studies. Even McDonald's and their god-awful McRibs, when they're doing studies on those, they find out whether or not <laughs> those sell or not. Those are all part of daily history. But history is important in a lot of other ways. I try to make it personal to people. For instance, you know, we talk about his history as being examples and heroes. We also talk about history as, you know, being, we can't operate without a history because otherwise we're operating in a vacuum. There's a uh, movie, I can't remember the name of it, but it's about uh, a man who goes to sleep at night and he forgets everything he knows. When he wakes up the next morning, he doesn't know anything that he knew the day before. How does he deal with that? He has a tape recorder. At the end of the day, he tape records everything he knows about himself. He says, I'm Jim Trotter. You know, I live in Lexington, Kentucky. I teach at Georgetown College. My camera's outside and parked in the street because he doesn't know where his car is. Things like that. And then he puts a note on it says, play me. When he wakes up the next day, he plays his tape recorder and it tells him his history that he knows at that page. Each day he adds to that history. You know, hi our history is, is our tape recorder of America, of our individual lives. I try to put those kind of words together and say, stress that to people. The history is not something we do in a vacuum. We're in part of everything that we do every day. It gives us a sense of identity, but it really promotes understanding of other cultures. You know, you say if you go to a foreign country, you know, when you come back to your own country, you never look at things the same way again. Well, that's like history. If you go back into history, you look at people of the past. You learn about them. You're reading their mail. You may know more about them than anybody else in the world does because you know, you know what people are saying about them, but they didn't even know that. And when you do that, then you can kind of understand what they saw and what their lives were like. And, and, but I think when you do that, you also come back to our present time and you know better about that time and you see things through a different light that way. You're more understanding of diversity, you're more understanding of conflict, more understanding about things that teach empathy in a sense like that. So, and uh, you develop critical skills, of course, and you can talk about those, the critical skills of knowledge of history, how to write, how to learn, how to see things objectively. But more than that, and crucial, and I'll conclude with this, otherwise Mr. Barry will probably start hitting me on the corner <laughs> here, but is the perspective of history. To me, that's the whole thing, the context it gives us. I spoke to the legislature a couple of years ago on their ethics committee. Everybody, every legislator was there. I spoke about, first of all, the scandals of history, what not to do for the legislature. They seemed to enjoy that. And I also then talked the next day about leadership and lost opportunities, what to do, and tried to put that in a context again that they could understand. And now the context didn't seem to work too well because the legislative session didn't pass a lot of bills that were particularly enlightening. But still, those are the kind of things we need to do is to talk to the legislature, again, you're standing ovation afterwards because they hadn't heard these kind of things before. But perspective is important. And I'll tell you two stories. One of them is by a story by my dissertation director, my mentor at the University of Kentucky was telling me. I went to him one time, I was upset about some grade, I made a B plus, I think it was, and something I was very upset about that. And he was laughing about it, and he said, he told me about a time he had been very depressed. Found out later he'd been almost suicidal. He said that he'd been trying to get his mind off his problems, and he read a biography of Teddy Roosevelt to try to get his mind off his problems. He read that in that, in that biography in 1884, as many of you know, Teddy Roosevelt came home that day and his wife and his mother had both died that same day. And he wrote in his diary, and when my heart's dearest died, the light went out of my life forever. When my heart's dearest died, the light went out of my life forever. He was in the depths of despair. If this professor of mine said he read those words, he realized that Teddy Roosevelt had come back from that. 
become president of the United States. So his own problems, the professor's problems, didn't seem so big anymore. Put it in context and perspective. And that way allowed him to go on. We never know the effect our history is going to have, whether we're writing labels in a museum, whether we're doing editing of a journal, whether we're giving tours, whether we're working in historic homes, any of those kind of things that we do. We don't know the effect on the posterity, but we're affecting the future in all those ways. We don't know it, but we, we will be, and we are. And just like that biographer of that Teddy Roosevelt biography did not know the effect he had on that man at that time in that life. So with that, I'll tell one more story, and it gives, again, a perspective. There's a story about a man, I can't vouch for this one, a man in Alabama who was uh, going down the street, and he saw a rabid dog getting ready to attack a young boy. He killed the dog and saved the boy. The editor rushed up to him and said, Sir, I saw everything. I, I have my... Headlines already famed. It says, local, boy, local man performs heroic act, kills vicious dog, saves boy from death. And I said, well, that's fine. So I'm not local. I said, well, okay. I'll, man, so I'll, headline will be this. Alabama man saves boy, kills dog. I said, well, that's fine. But I said, I'm not from Alabama. I'm from New England. The man thought for a minute. said, okay. My headline will read, Yankee kills family pet. <laughs> <laughs> So it's all about perspective. Yes. Yeah. And history, uh, to me, that's the thing we have to stress is the perspective that history can give us and the importance that it has for our lives and all of us, whether it's in our community, in our state, our nation, or our world. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Clotter. Uh, Mr. Berry, the functions of history can seem more difficult to define than when we look at medicine, engineering, STEM disciplines. Uh, they're less tangible. They're less immediate. You're a gentleman who studies history every day, uh, and you are walking history in many ways. What's your thoughts on inspiring others to pursue history, not just out of an academic pursuit or recitation of dates or facts, but to make connectiveness to community? Well, I liked uh, listening to our Lieutenant Governor a while ago. Uh, she has a, a gift for applied intelligence, which is more rare than it ought to be. But she also uh, spoke consciously all through her remarks in the context of history. And um, this is um, something much needed, um, well, in, in our state, for example. We've been here, um, what, about 240 years, haven't we? Something like that. Yeah, 200. 240 years. That's good enough. <laughs> History's not He's a historian, not a mathematician. Oh, yeah. History's not always precise science. <laughs> History doesn't worry too much about dates, is that right? <laughs> I wish somebody told my teachers. <laughs> anyway, there's, uh, there are a lot more people here now than there were 200 years ago. Um, a lot more problems, but there's also a lot less than there was here 200 years ago. A lot less uh, uh, topsoil, less timber, le uh, fewer minerals, and uh, so on. So we've got to pick up 
um, ourselves where we are after much loss and try to see how uh, we can take care of what we have left. This is a, a tragic situation in a way and takes some courage to, to face it. But knowing that history makes it a part of honesty uh, to speak from that knowledge. It's very hard for me to forget it uh, because I live where I've always lived. Well, it's a revelation to me to know now that I have lived in history mm -hmm. and uh, have seen a lot of change, but I live where I've always lived and, and uh, uh, like the, uh, our Lieutenant Governor, I've, I've lived where my family has lived almost from the beginning, a long time. And if I walk in the woods now, I walk across cropland erosion, the old marks. I'm always reminded of that. And to, to try to speak responsibly from that knowledge is a, uh, a, a lifetime's work. Mr. Berry, this past week there was a piece that you wrote, a very eloquent piece, about racism and our president, and I'll let you talk about that, but along with the other reason why Kentucky's been in the news lately, and we're not going to talk about that here, what I do want to bring up is all across this country, particularly in the South, there's a lot of discussion about the Confederate dead and symbols and monuments in their honor. Um, some view those flags and those monuments uh, as enduring symbols of white supremacy, and others say they have their rightful place in history, even on public grounds. I want you to make that connection between our discourse about Confederate symbols and your piece about President Barack Obama. In that uh, piece about the uh, very subtle racism that we have evolved into, and I would think the more subtle, the more dangerous. I quoted, uh, without attribution, my brother. A little flurry of attention to the statue of uh, Jefferson Davis in the state capitol several years ago, and we were talking about it on the telephone, and my brother says, you can't improve your history by hiding the evidence. Uh, uh, so we know we have this past and we know that our consciousness is uh, affected by it. The history of racism in our state. Um, I've seen a lot of that history. Um, actually about a third of it. And I know that, uh, again, to be honest Kentuckians, that's a part of the context we speak from and part of our responsibility when we speak. Uh, what dis distresses me um, 
about this uh, current situation is that I think uh, politicians have uh, a, a duty to honesty that's, that's fairly complex. Uh, my point in, in the little article I wrote was that um, uh, the uh, complete opposition to the president and everything he does uh, is not politics. It uh, pretty clearly, to my sense, signifies racism and uh, permits a very subtle appeal to the racist vote. All you have to do if you're running for office is stand by while other people uh, insult uh, the president and say nothing. So uh, by not standing up and taking charge of their own followers and instructing them and saying, look, that's wrong, you can't say that. That's obviously wrong. Uh, you, you, and suffering, in, if necessary, the political consequences. So uh, the racism has in a way gone underground and uh, uh, two of the distressing things about it are one, this is partly the gift of, of political correctness. If you haven't uh, called anybody by the, what we now call the N-word, uh, then you're politically correct, and then uh, nobody's gonna look much farther, so they, people suppose. The other uh, thing that distresses me is the um, uh, easiness of addressing the problem of racism uh, in symbols. I understand about the Confederate flag and the problem it raises. Uh, I don't think that that flag is a, a symbol so much as it is a, a finger. Um, and it's rather negligible. I think after the, uh, the uh, South was defeated in the Civil War, all it had left was spite and it understands how to, to use symbols in a spiteful way. Of course, that's not to say that liberals um, can't be spiteful too, and it, it's a subtle art among them. But anyway, I think that the, uh, that the problem has to be addressed in its historical particularity. Uh, when, it, when it isn't made particular enough, when we haven't gone, uh, treated um, uh, history as a necessary subject of discourse, then it's easy to deal in symbols, it's easy to deal in, in generalities, but what we lose then is the sense of the humanity that's involved. So there's a kind of drift that occurs uh, white people drift toward the stereotype of the white racist. Black people drift toward the stereotype of um, the um, uh, black victim or the black sponger off the system or whatever the stereotype is. Um, 
my own experience of racism suggests to me that if you uh, put your mind to it and think about it, uh, the stereotypes very quickly quit working. Um, I, I grew up in, in, uh, under the old regime of segregated schools and so on, uh, but the stereotypes are really pretty useless uh, in my attempts to deal with that because although we were segregated and the formalities were observed, uh, the two um, races knew each other as uh, uh, neighbors, enemies, friends, whatever. But they, uh, when I think back to my childhood, uh, I'm really kind of impressed with the number of black people I knew by name and by character, and I still remember them that way. Nearly all of them are gone now into uh, the industrial cities and so on. Uh, but that's the way to me that it has to be dealt with as, as a lot of individual people uh, dealing with certain inevitabilities that arise from the historical situation. Not least that people across that divide would know each other and love each other. Doc hate each other too, but <laughs> hate each other love too. each other. <laughs> Dr. Clotter. You know, historians are trained to look at things dispassionately, which is both a good and bad thing. You know, we're trained to look at both sides of the issue. Sometimes, though, there's, there's not, that's not the best approach. But let me explain a little bit on that, what I mean by Henry Clay, the guy I'm writing about, you know, was a co great compromiser. He believed the compromise was important on everything except one thing, that was the issue of union. He'd compromise on slavery, anything else except to make sure the union stayed together. Abraham Lincoln, who called Clay his beau ideal as a statesman, believed in much of the same thing that Clay did. But when it came down to one issue, the issue of slavery, he thought that that was not a time to compromise. That there's some issues that are too strong you cannot compromise on. And that slavery was, an, the expansion of slavery in his case, was an issue that you could not make a compromise on. So he acted accordingly. Well, you know, this is a subject, I think, where people have very strong issues. There's a, some feel it's a symbolism, has a meaning to this issue of the Davis statue, for instance, but you can't compromise on it. Others feel that it's uh, an issue that you can't ignore and you forget your history if you do. And that you suggest a compromise and leave it in place, maybe put a perspective, something like that. It's a political decision, it's a historical decision, it's a memory decision, it's a moral decision. And each person can answer it their own ways. But you know, in my case, there's five people in the rotunda of the Kentucky Capitol. Henry Clay, Ephraim McDowell, a doctor, Jefferson Davis, Abraham Lincoln, and Alvin Barkley, a majority leader of the United States under FDR, and the uh, Vice President of the United States. I had my way, I'd do away with all four, four of the five of them, because a lot of them aren't tied to Kentucky very much at all. I'd have a, a place where Daniel Boone might be there, maybe Henry Clay, maybe John Marshall Harlan, the great dissenter, who was the dissenter on the Plessy versus Ferguson case, Robert Penn Warren, who lived most of his life in, until he went to college in Kentucky and wrote about Kentucky in his book, Kentuckian, and maybe Madeline McDowell Breckenridge, a real hero of Kentucky for me, a woman who was a vice, vice president of the women's suffrage movement and led the women's suffrage movement in Kentucky. Now, those are different people completely. Each person will look at this story and come up with different answers. In a sense, there's another story that I'll tell again, one just to keep us from being totally down on all these things, is that there's a ballad singer who went around in Kentucky 
And he said in his, he used to sing a ballad called Napoleon Crossing the Rockies. Well, somebody pointed out to him that uh, Napoleon never crossed the Rockies. <laughs> Napoleon wasn't even in America. And he thought a minute and he said, well, you know, historians differ. <laughs> and historians do differ, and that's okay. But it's a symbol, you know, this is a, something that's very important, and it's very f important to all of us that we recognize the historical context, but we also recognize the symbolism. I think the Confederate flag is one issue, statues is another issue. You can deal with each of them in a different way. But uh, this is a symbol that we have to deal with as historians, and we have to speak out on the issue as historians. That's what I mean when I said earlier that we have to speak out on public issues like Mr. Berry is doing. I call him in one of my books, The Conscience of Kentucky. In that sense, that's what we have to be conscious of our states, all of us. Dr. That's a, Clotter, that's I That's a terrible burden. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Clotter, I, I do want you to recite uh, the history and story behind our, the Kentucky State Anthem, My Old Kentucky Home, and how we know, many people know, that African Americans have balked at a certain phrase uh, in, the, in the verse of that song, but really it's more to the story than what we know about that, and if we knew our history, We'd understand it better, and I want you to make that point for me about my old Kentucky home. I will not sing the song, you'll be thankful. <laughs> but the song, basically, you know, my old Kentucky home was written originally by Stephen Collins Foster, who may or may not have been in Kentucky in my old Kentucky home when he wrote it. Probably wasn't. <laughs> uh, it was one of the myths of history again. But he wrote the song, and it's titled My Old Kentucky Home. But the original manuscript, the title of it is Uncle Tom Good Night. Written at the time of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And the words on it, he changed it because it would sell better in the South if it was not Uncle Tom's Cabin, obviously. But the words of the song talks about, you know, this, this, the, this, the all, everybody's happy, going on the little cabin floor, the birds are singing, the corn tops are ripe, everything like that is good. There's a knocking at the door, the slave sailors come knocking at the door. And he takes them to the South, my old Kentucky home far away. It's a different meaning entirely than the song, so when people sing that song, singing one song, but the memory song is another song. Those are the kind of myths of history that develop over time. We need to stress that, and I teach it in my classes, and, and everybody who hears that is, a, is surprised. Because every story that we have in each of our states here that are represented here has a story like that, where the memory is one thing and the risk, reality is something else. And we have to make sure that we stress both of them and tell the importance of memory and how it gets shaped and how it stresses the things that we sometimes don't want stressed in our reality of the story. Yes, Mr. Berry. Um, I think that song's about foreclosure, too. Um, everything's going along fine, and uh, people are getting along, and the life of this place is undisturbed. But what happens is that all of a sudden, hard times come. Not just the slave buyer, but the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, as I read it, the uh, farm is foreclosed. Uh, the um, mortgage is due and not paid, and so all of a sudden, the black half of this uh, little community, it becomes property. That's why my lady's weeping, uh, because a great abstraction has seized upon these people, and then they're sold into a completely different situation. But we've cleaned that up, you know, to make it, make it politically correct. Uh, the song actually says, "'Tis summer the darkies are gay." And we just uh, uh, took the racial reference 
out of the only part that people ever sing, but with some kind of sentimentality that I don't quite understand. But I, I, uh, I agree uh, that compromise can't uh, help or improve something that's absolutely wrong. Uh, but this, uh, this alerts me to the difficulty of uh, history because it remains the difficulty of the present in a way. Um, there were people, I think, who owned slaves who knew it was wrong, and yet there they were. Um, and I'm kind of tired of uh, liberals who think that if they had been born Thomas Jefferson, they wouldn't have owned his slaves. Well, I think they, they couldn't have missed any farther. If they'd been born Thomas Jefferson, they would have been just as sinful as he was and probably wouldn't have written the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> but to, to, to bring this home, I think it's absolutely wrong to pollute the air. But I polluted the air to get here this morning, and I'm going to pollute it to get home. So did you all. I think that our descendants will hold air pollution against us the same way we hold slavery against our ancestors now. So of course, we've got more pollution than just air pollution. We've got water pollution and so on. Uh, this, this is the age, in other words, of the, uh, the um, of, uh, original sin, round two. So this, to me, changes the uh, necessary uh, approach. This, this makes a, an approach to history. Uh, an, uh, this requires an approach to history that's complicated by the sense of our own involvement in what's wrong. I've been flying around for years uh, raising hell about air pollution in airplanes that are polluting the air. <laughs> Um, this is very difficult, and, and uh, so we have to suffer. We have to suffer our involvement in history in order to be qualified to have an opinion about it, I think. It's said that newspaper and TV reports are the first draft of history. Uh, what effect do you both think that the changing media landscape, where there are so many different voices, not just pure, legitimate, journalistic ones, but editorializing voices are now writing history as they see it. Is that problematic or concerning to either one of you? Well, again, this maybe one minor point here, quickly, quick to point on this, since I've been making some longer points before. Uh, one thing that you know, media does is it takes away some of that perspective of history. My parents, my mother's 94, my stepfather's 98, are both living. They both think they live in such a violent age today. And I looked at the, at the statistics. When they were in high school in the 1930s in Kentucky, there were three times as many deaths of murder in Kentucky then as now, in a population half the size. The chances of getting killed were six times greater when they were growing up than now. But they feel they live in a very, very age that's very difficult 
in an age that's very violent. And it's because the media presents every story that comes up and plays it over and over again. So it takes away perspective. Again, uh, historians have to be the voice that's giving the perspective in that. Doesn't mean that every murder is a bad murder. Every murder should be, should be stressed as an evil thing. But it's still, the perspective is there. It's not really the violent age that they think it is in some ways. And so history is it's our desire, it's our duty, in a sense, to make that perspective and give that perspective to, and media is one of the things that does it. And media also, it can be a plus and a minus. I mean, you can, my students can, I can say something in my classes and say, I don't know the answer to that. They can look and Google it and have the answer before we leave class. That can be a good thing. The bad thing is they can be Googling other things in my class too. But, you know, as all of us recognize this issue, and we recognize the pluses and the minuses of this, but it's an issue that we have to deal with as historians, too. You've uh, uh, read a lot of old newspaper editorials. I'm afraid so. Uh, well, I know you've read a lot more than I have, but isn't that a kind of a, an, uh, an instruction in perspective and how perspective changes as it draws out. Those editorials were usually written for, with some immediacy to the subject, and you're reading them from an entirely different right. distance. Yes, yes and, it, uh, and it, when we read these newspapers again, you know, we think of our age as being a very uh, partisan age. We read the newspapers of the 1820s. You know, the 1828 election of John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, probably the dirtiest election in American history. You know, he's talking about Andrew Jackson as mulatto, and his mother had been married to a black man, and John Quincy Adams had been a pimp for the Tsar of Russia, things like that. Those were words that were in those elections in the newspapers. And you read that, and it puts it in context, but it also realizes that you can understand the age better, too, and you can understand the people better. It's, I don't know if that's what you're talking about or not, Mr. Perry. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to him, right? Sure, that's what I mean. But you read that all that anger and that, uh, yeah. and you uh, see it damped down by time. Yes, that it's yes. not possible to say the same things now about that. Right. I want you each to talk a little bit about lost opportunities, Dr. Clotter. You've written about that when it comes to Kentucky history. Had policymakers, as Lieutenant Governor Critley Allen said earlier, actually followed the lessons of history, they may have made different decisions. On a national scale, um, can you see that playing out as well, the, the ignorance of history and how, um, where we are now is being affected by that? Well, I think any, any of us here can look at a lost opportunity in the past that we can say, had I been there and I had done that, I would have changed the history of that. You know, just think of all the things that have happened that we've done in the past that you know, lost opportunities can be little ones, can be big ones, but they all have an effect on the history. In Kentucky, for instance, just an example, the first constitution of the state, they voted on whether to have slavery in the constitution. The vote was 26 to 16. Change of six votes would have made the difference and slavery would have been done away with in Kentucky instead of they kept Kentucky slavery. Individuals make a difference in history. Same thing happens throughout our, your own state's history. You can each point to lost opportunity. Those opportunities are important to us to look at because they tell us what we could have done. And the better part of our nature, what we could have is part of humanity. You know, we're all part of the human condition. We're all part of the, we're all on this earth together. And we all sometimes don't forget that, we sometimes forget that. And we kind of think of ourselves as us versus them. 
but it's not that, and we have to work together to make sure that people understand that, I think, again. And again, there's many of those opportunities you can go into. Mr. Perry? Mr. Perry. To me, uh, the, the loss, as we've gone along, uh, I don't know whether it's the biggest loss, um, but it's a very great loss, and that is, over and over again, the opportunity to converse, to talk together across these uh, uh, lines of difference and division. Um, the work up to the Civil War, as, as I understand it, um, uh, occurred in a complete loss of, of discourse about the, the issues. Um, we've very nearly lost that now in our political life. People are talking to each other in terms of, of slogans and insults and uh, uh, using those uh, shortcuts when what you long to hear, and it has a distinctive sound, is actual discourse where the issues are discussed at length, patiently, and in detail. And then somebody replies at length, patiently, and in detail. Good. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of state and local history. Dr. Clauder, I'll have you start with that. And we'll ask if you have any questions, if you'd like to start lining up at the mics you see in the room, we'll take as many questions as we can in the short time we have remaining. Dr. Well, I hope I'm preaching to the choir here when I talk about the importance of state and local history, but uh, I think all of us know that. But uh, John Edgerton, the late John Edgerton from Tennessee and Kentucky, his book Generations has this line. He's, it's a book about most of it's focused on 200-year-old, a couple who's over 100 years old, and they're both of them living and talking and bright, and he interviews them, and he writes in there about how history meant something to this couple. He writes, it was a concrete and personal thing, a continuous story in which they and their forebears and their descendants were directly involved. In their eyes, it bound past to the present, the distant to the near at hand, made unknown people, unknown people important, ordinary places extraordinary, common things significant, history gave meaning and continuity to their lives. And in a sense, that's what our history is all about in a state and local level. Somebody said, what, is all politics is personal? Something that was a local? Well, all history is local too. It starts there, and it goes from there. But you know, state local history gives us a sense of identity because we're born into a certain class, a certain culture, a certain state, a certain region, a certain community, and you know, it helps us understand who we are in a sense. And I'll close with one more quote. Uh, they say that uh, if you steal from one person, you're a plagiarist. If you steal from many people, you're doing research. <laughs> so I'm doing. This is my research. Uh, somebody said that a house is never still in darkness to those who listen intently. There's a whispering in distant chambers. An unearthly hand presses a snip of the window. The latch rises. Ghosts were created when the first person woke in the night. You know, historians live with these ghosts of the past. And we can tell their stories, help our stories come alive, make us understand the past, and help us understand the present. Gives a sense of, of, of knowledge, a sense of complexity. But also more than that, 
I sent, I think it was Gerda Learned who said that you know, when we write history, we're resurrecting the dead and letting their voices speak again, letting the voiceless sometimes speak for the very first time. I think that's what's important to stay in local history is that we let the voiceless speak. We can let all the people speak again once more time. Mr. Barry. Well, yes, I, I heartily concur that all history is, is um, uh, if not initially, at least ultimately local because the great forces are released and they come down on, on places. So the, the um, history of Kentucky in the Civil War seems to me to be a very good example of this. That the, uh, Kentucky was supposedly uh, neutral, it tried for that, and of course people were sucked in onto both sides. Um, my little town of Port Royal one day uh, almost had the Battle of Port Royal because two bands of recruits, Confederate and uh, federal drilled together on the same day and nearly came to a fight. Now, these were people who knew each other, uh, who hated each other then not as stereotypes but as themselves. And um, the lines get to me, to my sense, horribly snarled in this state during that time. Um, there was the formal uh, combatants, uh, but they started a thing that released a lot of informal combat, and uh, this kind of thing was going on all over the place. People stopping by, their neighbors, and saying, I'm going to come back with a pistol in one hand and a torch in the other, setting fire to every house in the haystack belonging to, to unionists. It was uh, Bart Jenkins, one of, one of my compatriots. Um, so my sense of, well, say the presidencies of the Confederacy and the, uh, the Union, um, they presided over a great violence that was let loose and once it was loose, there wasn't much that you could do about it until it exhausted itself. This seems to me to be the tragedy of the uh, Civil War, and I'm getting, so I hate hearing people treat the Civil War as if it were some kind of a great national uh, event. What was that fellow's name who, uh, Kentucky was occupied uh, for years by, well, what was the general's name? Are you talking about uh, Burbage? Yes, yeah. Bloody Burbage was sometimes yes. called. Yes, they did, re did reprisal killings and that uh, sort of thing. And then there was a, a prison here in Louisville. Uh, it wasn't exactly Guantanamo. It wasn't efficient enough, but you could get stuck in there simply for, for saying something unacceptable to somebody uh, against the, the Union, uh, against Burbage maybe, but you could they could, they could stick you in there, and the way you got out was knowing somebody. Yes, ma'am. Um, I wanted to uh, ask about uh, the, well, the, uh, having these stat statues of Jeff Davis was something that was brought up, and also the Confederate flag 
uh, flying. Um, and I really liked what you said about it being a finger because that's the way, I'm from Texas and I, I, see, I see it that way in, in Texas that people are kind of going, we're, we're still supporting the Confederacy. Um, and in Texas, at the University of Texas, the statue of Jeff Davis was moved from the place of honor very recently uh, to, a, to a backwater place on, on the University of Texas campus uh, uh, from the main mall leading up to it. So these things can be moved, and uh, we've seen that recently with the flag. Uh, so uh, should historians uh, support that uh, as a um, something saying, this is not something that necessarily should be in public places, in a central place, in a place of honor. Uh, and yes, we should acknowledge that this is the history, but, but also support the fact that there should be more diversity in a place of honor on our campuses and on our uh, capitals. quickly, either one of you, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but do you think those monuments should remain or should they not be? The problem with wars is that they don't end. And uh, we've still got the Civil War. And uh, uh, we've, we're dealing with, I don't know how consciously, uh, a kind of resolve among the uh, Southerners that, uh, the, uh, that they, uh, to, to defy, to continue to defy. They say, well, you've beaten us, you've killed us, but you haven't changed us. So I don't know. Uh, if, if the, those symbols disappear from public spaces, it certainly is an argument for that. Um, but there's something that you can't stop about that too. Uh, if they disappear, they disappear only because some people want them to disappear. And so the resentment goes back among the people who wanted them to appear. And it festers, and it breaks out again somewhere else down the line. And uh, there are people, you know, who need somebody to blame. And uh, it, it, it goes on and on. And the, the subtler it is, the more crafty it is, the more politically correct it can be, the longer it's gonna last. I don't know what to do about it. I really don't know what to do about it. Um, if it were up to me, I'd say, Yes, if this is an object of contention, let us have peace. Let's get rid of it. Uh, that costs me nothing. But there's somebody else involved, uh, maybe more dangerous than I am, who says, well, look, this has cost me a lot. And uh, how do you stop that from happening? Well, if you agree that you can't compromise on absolute on the absolutes, rights and wrongs, um, that's fine. But I think the next thing that has to be done, and maybe, maybe this ought to be said uh, in, in, in a discussion of history, uh, the people on one side need to be able to imagine the people on the other side. Um, uh, white people most certainly need to know uh, what it would be 
like to be a black person uh, before the Civil War, to be Uncle Tom sold south, or a black person now. But then, of course, we need to say the other thing. Black people need to know what it was like to be a white person born under slavery. And uh, perhaps need to be imagine what that has cost white people over the long haul to deaden whatever they had to deaden them in themselves to own another person. This ha but you see, this leads always to conversation, to particular talk. Um, you can't just juggle symbols. We've turned coal into a symbol in this state. We've turned Barack Obama. People in this state are still running against Obama. He ain't even in the race. <laughs> yes, sir, your question or comment. Yeah, I, I think mine's kind of for Mr. Barry, but I'd be glad for anybody to interest, uh, answer it. I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to um, how you balance accurate historical representation when you're in the creative process. Um, like, how do you find a balance between artistic license and historic, uh, accurate historic representation in your work? How do you balance uh, creativity in your work with accurate historical facts and representation? Well, when you say creativity or imagination, I mean, it's Creativity is a word that to me uh, uh, calls up imagination. And imagination, uh, we can take to mean making things up. But if we take it literally, uh, it has to do with images, with imaging, that is to make it visible. And uh, to me, a, a, a fiction writer and a historian are both stuck with that obligation to make it somehow seeable, the things that have happened. Um, um, maybe a fiction writer has um, uh, a latitude in this that a historian doesn't, uh, and yet it seems to me to be perfectly legitimate to walk up to a fiction writer and say, look, you misrepresented this. And I don't see why there shouldn't be a historical criticism of what we call fiction. Yeah, I'm not so sure that there shouldn't be a fictional uh, criticism of history. Maybe fiction comes from the word, uh, the uh, Latin root, fingery, which is to form, to mold, to touch. And uh, I like to fall back on that because it's it's, uh, uh, a historian is doing the same formative labor, trying to get it into some kind of order in which it can be seen, understood, and so on. So um, you know, when I looked that word up to confirm <laughs> my memory of it, fingery, I wish finger derived from that to form, to mold, to touch, but it doesn't. <laughs> <clears throat> Some of my critics think I, I write uh, fiction too in my historical books, but uh, I've said that you know history is limited by the by the research you do, and fiction is limited by your imaginations. 
both of them can tell stories that are important to us. You know, and it, they're stories that are of the human condition. We can write about the human condition in the reality of the history. I can write about the human condition in the fiction's mind of the fiction writer. And both of them make, have a, f but the thing is, you must write good history too. History that's readable. History that causes, as Catherine Dickman Bauer said, history causes the reader to turn the page. Dull history doesn't solve the problems. Fiction writing can take that away and solve the problems sometimes, but we can solve both problems with good writing. Mr. Berry writes good writing. Yes. Well, if, if, uh, I understand <laughs> the, the danger of being accused of fiction, certainly, and, uh, but I think that a, that a historian without imagination would probably be as bad off as a fiction writer without any history. That's right, exactly. Good point. Yes, sir. As we study history and present it and um, try to make it relevant within the context of divisive topics, um, can historians or should historians remain politically neutral and objective when doing that? Political neutrality of historians is should, what he's should asking. Should you remain objective? Should as you historians? remain objective as historians? Quick answers. We want to get one more question okay. in, and then we'll the have closing comments. Quick answer comments. to me is: it, it's in each individual person answers that himself or herself. My view is that I can write my history in, in a way that influences policy, or I can speak in, speak out in a way that influences policy. And both of those are legitimate ways to do it. You can write stories in the newspaper, and you can write stories, professional articles. You can do it in different ways, but I think all of us have the obligation to speak out on our issues, but they can be issues that we do use as sources to speak out for us, or you can do it o overtly as well. But each individual, I think, answers it the, their own way of how they want to do it. That answers your question. If there were an authentic objectivity, history would only be written once. <laughs> <laughs> My, my friend Wes Jackson, who is a scientist, says he wants people to be objective, but he wants them to be objective in the right way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. Final question, I'm afraid. All right. Numerous politicians recently have made extremely racist, sexist, and xenophobic comments that have received an uncomfortable, uncomfortable amount of support. In this socially divisive political climate, what do you think the role of the historian should entail in keeping these comments and political trends in historical perspective? So historical perspective of uh, xenophobic, homophobic, racist, sexist comments that are going on and by politicians themselves. I think it's our, our uh, we have to speak out. If there's something that we see that's not correct and his historically correct, we have to speak out on that issue uh, because that's what we are, we're historians. It's, it's you know, it's, again, your, your viewpoint may affect what you write, but if we look at this thing, the material, and we see that somebody is, somebody's talking about the Civil War and they don't talk about slavery, we have to talk about slavery in the beginning of the Civil War. If we don't, then we're, we're taking away from ourselves and our tasks and our jobs and our lives what we are as people. If we don't say, speak out on issues like that. Anything you'd like to add? Because I want to give you all a chance to read a little bit before we no, make some don't final think comments. I need to add anything to that. Quick answer if you have something, Mr. Berry. You have anything you'd like to add to that? If not, I want you no, to read no, for us. No, I don't. Uh, we'll have Dr. Clotter go first, and as we do our final comments, we're going to 
have them do a little storytelling, which they is what they do read. best. This is a book I did called Kentucky Justice, Southern Honor, American Manhood. And it uh, deals with a judge, Richard Reed, who was horsewhipped in another attorney's office for writing an opinion that the attorney thought infected and attached to attack his honor. Reed, after that, was urged by a lot of people to kill this, this assailant because the code of honor said he could do that. He'd shoot him in the back of the shotgun and get away with it, literally. But he didn't do that. He said, as a judge, you would let the course of the law follow its route. You would also, as a Christian gentleman, you want to follow the law of, rest of revenge. So uh, then he, one day he gets a pistol, and after that tragedy follows, you have to read the book to see what the tragedy is. But here's what I wrote at the end of the book. This is not a spoiler alert, so. In his time, Reed should have been at his personal summit, for he had climbed the high mountains of his fears and physical problems, but then after the caning, he had peered out and seen even higher challenges now before him. When he looked at the faces of the people in his America, he saw revealed back to him parts of his own tortured soul. He lived for the law and died for it. He lived for his love and departed when he feared the loss of love. He lived with hope in the future and died without it. Yet he had lived and had shown the rare courage to try to effect change, had achieved much and had done right for his fellow humans. But they did not return his devotion cut deeply a life filled with the scars of so many pains could not endure the new cruel wounds to the psyche. And so Richard Reed died a failed hero, but a man who above all else had tried to be a hero for others. A man of many mysteries ended his life facing the ultimate mystery. In the cemetery at Mount Sterling, Richard Reed lies beside his wife and stepson. His tall bronze and granite statue situated on a high hill shows a man with a book in one hand and a pen in the other. A plaque on the front presents blindfolded justice the broken sword and the serpent nearby. Part of the inscription reads, Martyr to the Law. The four angels once surrounded this structure have been stolen. <laughs> Whether by design or not, the statue of Reed has his back to the town he believes to turn its back on his cause. He instead faces the other graves, the dead past. As he looks out, his eyes sweep beyond all that, perhaps still searching for the better life that he never found and for which he died. That's good. Complex Did Wendell Berry just say that was cool? Did you just no. say that? Oh, I thought you said that I was cool. I said that's good. That's good. I'm sorry. You're, you're like me. You don't understand don't anything but vowels. <laughs> this is a, a, a little passage that comes from an essay about the Civil War and about my, my uh, dis, dissatisfaction with public attitudes about it. When my thoughts circle about trying to give my disturbance a location that is specific and familiar enough, they light sooner or later on the battle hymn of the Republic. This song has a splendid tune, but the words are perfectly insane. Suppose, if you doubt me, that an adult member of your family said to you, without the music, but with the same triumphal conviction, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, would you not, out of fear and compassion, try to find help? <laughs> and yet this sectional hymn, by an alchemy obscure to me, seems finally to have given us all, north and south, east and west, 
a sort of official judgment of our history. It renders our ordeal of civil war into a truly terrifying simple-mindedness in which we can still identify Christ with military power and conflate the American way of life with the will of God. I have made clear, I hope, my failure to perceive the glory of the coming of the Lord in the Civil War and its effects. The North was not uniformly abolitionist. The South was not uniformly pro-slavery or even pro-secession. Theirs was not a conflict of pure good and pure evil. The Civil War was our first great industrial war, which was good for business, like every war since. The Civil War established violence against non-combatants as acceptable military policy. The Army of the United States, no longer the Northern Army, proceeded from the liberation of the slaves to racist warfare against the native tribes people of the West. Moreover, as the historian Donald Worcester has said, the Civil War supplanted the slave power of the South with the money power of the North. And he continued, the fact of the matter is, we have not even today figured out how to come to terms with the money power that replaced the slave power. Here, here. <laughs> Thank you, sir. That's good and cool. Mr. Wendellberry, Dr. Potter. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And they will be available to sign books. You can purchase books and sign them uh, right outside these doors. So please take the opportunity to do so. And thank you all very much for your attention today. Another round of applause for these wonderful gentlemen. Renee's quite a pro because she got my pitch in, which is books are available to be <laughs> signed right outdoors. Uh, lunch is upstairs. Uh, the um, membership lunch is upstairs in the exhibit hall. Thank you again very much for uh, giving us so much context. Sorry, didn't get enough water in while I was sitting over there. So we'll see you here in another couple hours.